all right welcome back this is a preload that i've never done before but i'm doing this after the fact which is after uh recording the podcast in quotes um i'm making this recording just to give some awareness that the first third or about a a little bit less than a third of the recording i tried using a podcast equipment that a piece of a cheap podcast equipment that i'd bought on amazon and it didn't work um there was a lot of static uh, i was trying to have my own um background music while i spoke but in reviewing it i couldn't have done a worse job so just an heads up that the first third or so um, less than a third, potentially, is not the best quality. No, the entire thing is crap quality. But this one takes crap to another level. All right, so my apologies. Bear with it for the first third. I do apologize. And I did um, revert back to less technology, less static and a little bit less crappy. All right, one low, full joy. this one works the music uh, I'm not even gonna I'm gonna resist sharing the name of the awesome artists that we're listening to right now I'm gonna just allow it to play a little bit I'll come back to the roots January the 25th, 2023. We got a snowstorm coming. Shoot, I just look out through the window. A shovel already, you know. Look like I need to go gas up the, ch- the shovel. So I'm gonna be reading Born for Dead today again. This time I trying it from this contraption that I bought off Amazon, the cheapest one I could. I'll be roll like that. Thank you. 
part. I've had it put down for a while now. I tend to do that. Get these these ideas to buy these things and I buy them and then just park them. As much as I would love to sit down and listen to this all day, I want to do a, a reading and then I want to go to some, some studying. Yes, uh, your boy is studying to become a Google certified data analyst with the intention ultimately of becoming a data scientist. I might play some background music still while I'm reading, see if that works. I might just resort to the, um, the software that I upload this thing to. Background. No, no. We're going to go natively with external background music. How oh, that sound? Wait, why this guy named pop up on my thing a while ago? That's another story. So we're going to shut it down now and just move forward and then and the reading and a little bit of recapping. All right, so, always stay. This is always stay. This is always stay. Again, today is what? January the 25th, 2023. It's a Wednesday. We got snow. I hear that we're getting our, you call it here, a polar vortex. Polar vortex. That's all. Uh, we have had one before, and I think it was 2013. Um, now, listen, I don't know nothing about using mics, but this is all the setup stay this morning. Normally, the reading is I plug in a regular headphone, like a cheapy dollar store headphone into my phone and talk into the recorder, upload it and to the software and it do its thing and it's published. You know, add a little background and do a little this and a little that. Today, I'm trying to act like me. I'm the man called Barry G from the Barry G Show. You know, you're in the Barry G Show. Just kidding. I'm, I, I'm trying to set up and feel like a little, it's my thing. Um, a little radio announcer. So I have this cheap mic. Understand? If it breaks, don't worry. Um, I took off the sponge off it. Let me see if it's on any different with the sponge on. Did it sound any different? Did I sound any better? And I took it off. The reason why I take it off still is that the mic is gold. I like seeing the gold mic when the sponge is it's a black sponge so it looks regular but what's been happening since I don't know if it's touch on the Hussein Bolt thing I think I did but I ended up going off on a tangent for about an hour so I did not 
um, bother to upload that, but I'm keeping it for, for is that a flower here or is it just thunder? Keeping it for another time. But Usain Bolt um, found out that his investment account had been depleted. Um, I think the, the, the figures change from minute to minute, but it sounds like his ballpark somewhere around 12 or 10 million US dollars he had invested back in the 20 earlys. And um, I want to say probably 2010, 11, 12, 13, thereabout. Um, kind of jumping ahead of the story, but it seems like he had invested it through a limited liability company that he owned. So it wouldn't be in the name of Usain Bolt, it would be in the name of the company that account with the SSL is the name of the investment company that he had it with. They found recently that his account of 12 million, let's work with that, US dollars, is down to 12,000 US dollars. The maths brings them can't work out the percentage right there, but even as much as my maths teacher hated me, um, I could answer that question to say, boy, I a whole heap of money that him lose. How much money did he lose? Enough. It's not even a laughing matter, it's a sad matter because let's reflect on who Usain Bolt is. This is a little scrawny, a tall scrawny black youth from country running his heart out to make something in life. And even just thinking about and remembering this boy running down the track, he made lean one side. He used to run with his head lean. <laughs> like, he said too heavy for his body. He running, you know those runners, he was a 200 meter runner, so clearly you have the luxury of not running in farm sometime. Tall, lanky um, folks tend to run 200 meter and frankly, usually have some very bad farm. And Hussein Bolt, was the baddest of them all in terms of running form. Was, his, his, his running form was, was terrible. And even when he retired, his running form had improved quite a bit, but he still wasn't the most efficient runner. If Hussein Bolt was an efficient runner, 9.58 would be um, a record that would have been broken. Simple. I think if he had run more like a, like a Michael Johnson, hey man, they would probably still be in the blocks by the, by the time Hussein Bolt um, is at the finish line. But let's, 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 let's move on. So let's, let me not divert. Please keep me, keep me, keep me on, keep me on track um, because we already got nine minutes and I haven't started reading the book. I want to read the book and I want to go study. Um... Uh, and this contraption here that I have, it might be a full waste of time. So it's better to waste a little bit less time than too much time. I mean, better to waste. Well, whatever. Anyhow, so they, they, they found that his account was depleted. Um, the accused perpetrator, or the apparent perpetrator, was a Miss Jean Ann Pantan. Pantan is a very prominent name in Jamaica in different forms. It's funny. I know Pantan and he's a good youth. So, frankly, 
is a good youth. Pantan, I know, is a good youth. In fact, when I first came to Canada, Pantan was the one who reached out to someone that I, someone that I knew connected me with Pantan, and Pantan connected me with a recruiter in the IT, IT recruiter who, who recruited um, a more mature IT um, professional positions here in Canada. And that person helped me to get my first job at a um, very a leading, uh, we call it nutraceutical. Uh, we did, um, what do you call it? Um, supplements, um, hydroxycut, um, that everybody know, it was killing off people apparently. Um, um, Celtic, Nitrotech. Um, can't remember them now because I'm trying to remember them. That's why I can't. I, I show you how bad my memory is. And whenever I make the effort to remember something, is when that thing that I'll be doing day in, day out without a thought, without a problem, when I try to remember it is when I forget it. Like today I couldn't remember the code to open my, my door, my front door. Press do all kind of thing. Press code so many times. What I had to do was to find an alternative. But else I would have freeze my ass off. I started calling my wife on the phone to say, hey, you remember the code for the front door that I use 18 million times a day for the past century? But um, she's at work and I wasn't able to get a hold of her. So I would have froze my ass off. So I had to find an alternative, which was another code, but at least I remember that code through another door. Um, or to another way, to the garage, frankly. Um, so, that was that. Um, it's funny how we are so um, cautious with the information, because I'm like, should I? But yeah, there's a code, my garage locked in here, so it's not like somebody can just open it in here. And I have cameras and lasers and some... AI dogs that will near anybody who try to come through the garage. So, anyhow, where was I? So, Usain Bolt was robbed, and they found that, and oh, so Pantan had helped me to, to connect with this um, recruiter. Greg was his name. Can't remember his last name. And he's a Canadian, Jamaican who was working at a large recruiting firm. And it, it, it's funny, I was connecting with another Canadian recruiter, but she said, hey, I don't think you have enough experience or qualifications for this position. They had a position at the time for a Lotus Notes um, engineer and administrator. And um, Lotus Notes engineer and, and land administrator when I first came. And um, she said, no. And I'm like, listen, I was taught Lotus Notes and Lotus Domino by the people who wrote the code. My company in Jamaica had sent me overseas to a place called Alpharetta in Georgia to be taught by these guys who wrote this code for the CIA. That's the kind of experience I had. So how is that experience not sufficient experience? Yeah. Forget about that. Fortunately, this other guy didn't have that kind of 
bias and you put forward my resume and the story is a long story, I'll tell it another time or if I haven't told it before and I got the job with and that started my IT career back here. Restarted it but started it here in Canada. I left there, when I left there I was um, uh, IT, it uh, what you call it, IT project manager, they said. Um, let me see if I can actually get some music in in the background and see if that works um, while I'm talking here. Whose who's music I go and play? I could play this one. Let me turn it down so it play very low, back in track, low, and turn it down and just go and play it in the background. So that it's not dry. Yeah. So, I wish I had a, something that didn't have any any um any 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 words just just yeah I've been um Peter Tosh creation let me see if I can find something else let's try this right yeah that that's a little bit more relaxing it's not distracting from the story so anyhow um What had happened was, yeah, I got the job and I started working in, with, with, with that company, Muscle Tech. All right, just put it out there. Everybody know who made hydroxychloroquine. And that was because Mr. Panton had recommended or connected me with this recruiter. So I don't have a bad history with the Panton. I have a good one. But this... Jean and Pantan, I don't know if she's related to the Pantan that I know, but she's a wealth manager at SSL that had been siphoning off um, people's money. And she even put out an affidavit or uh, whatever uh, they say, uh, what do you call it? When you, when you accept that, it, I know everybody's like, it's Carla so and so. It's not testify, it's a, a confession statement of sorts. They call it affidavit that was witnessed by a justice of the peace. Don't get me started on justice of the peace in Jamaica. I mean, <laughs> don't get me started on who can. I probably should go down and become a. I'm gonna. Up, I'm gonna figure out how to be a justice of the peace in JA. You know, watch it. I'm gonna be a, J, a JP. Watch. Anyhow, um, and in it she listed the names and the accounts that she has um, siphoned and how she did it. She didn't list Usain Bolt. She list but. Interestingly, she list Norman Peart, who is Usain Bolt's manager from him was a kid. And that manager was fired by Usain Bolt, I think, in December. So we can stitch that together. I think 85% stitching it together and, and, and making some, some, some correlation um, would not be too far off. Or, or it would be a reasonable um, guess that it's connected. Because then we realized just yesterday with our, in an interview or in a review from a Cliff Hughes at Nationwide that um, the account may have been depleted from as far back as 2017. Although then there's, it's, it's conflicting because then just a few minutes ago I was reading something about some things that she did taking out some money in 2021 or 2019, 2021. So... It's confusing, but Cliff Hughes said that they found evidence that the account was nearly depleted from 2017 
and um, there may have been indications as per what he was saying that some of the money was taken out by the same Norman Peart, Bolt's manager, that he fired. A little, uh, uh, not so, not so, not so, not so, not so recently, or recently. They have called in the FBI, which is another sticky situation because when they call in the FBI into a sovereign nation like Jamaica to say, come investigate a apparent fraud situation, what kind of message you sending the people that we don't have the caliber, we don't have people that we trust within our whole nation to do something like that? That's, it's shameful to me. It's almost like you're throwing a bone to the dog, but you throw the wrong damn bone. And then I was listening to this um, this, this, this journalist this morning talking about the fact that uh, the, 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 the FBI thing uh, we shouldn't have it because it's a sovereign nation and trying to be a republic and all of that. And apparently it is done to appease the diaspora. Are you freaking kidding me? Sorry, but why is it that the diaspora get blamed for foreign-related stuff? Nobody more foreign-minded than the Jamaicans are finding. You know what people in the diaspora come out here to do? Work so that we can send back money and, and build back and build Jamaica, build with things in Jamaica. And this thing about extra, what extricating the diaspora as some people who run left far yard. Trust me, Bob Marley himself did have to run go to England one time. Bob Marley himself, actually, his mother had filed for him and he lived in Delaware. The world is your oyster. And a lot of the people who are quick to beat up on people who live overseas and yeah, no, I kind of is, 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 get the chance to go, they would, they would run. You know, and we all can't live on the rock at all times. You know, at the end of the day, each person's reason is valid and is their reason. At the end of the day, I left Jamaica back in 2002, I think it was. Simply because I had come to the top at the, the, the apex of my, um, my, what you call it here, my, um, my career. And um, I, I wanted to do more. And more, even, more, even more compelling was the fact that I was now poised to start practically report to the Prime Minister at the time. And yeah, I wasn't feeling it, what was happening politically. So my thoughts was I gonna go away for five years, make myself independently um, financially independent of the system and come back so that I can I'll be uncorruptible because I've seen all, many of my friends, not many, but a couple of my friends are people that I know go into the politics and they go in with good intentions and they get corrupted or they get spit out and they made no impact. Because at the end of the day, they are dependent on the system, the same system that they're trying to change. They're dependent on it for survival. So I didn't want to do be that guy. So that's why I came. But I didn't, I didn't forsake my country. And the fact is, if somebody, people want to forsake Jamaica, you, you would know. Brand Jamaica wouldn't be so big overseas, all over the world and globally. It's Jamaicans in the diaspora that fly the flag high and hard. It's Jamaicans in the diaspora that takes the brunt of when Jamaica falls down and it's Jamaicans in the diaspora that 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 disseminates and promote Jamaica the good in Jamaica overseas you know so we all have a have a have a um 
have a role to play. So this thing about them going to the F and, and I think if anything is Jamaicans in the diaspora who have seen the belly of the beast and see how Babylon works and would say, why the heck are they going to Babylon for this kind of thing? Because at the end of the day, we don't need Babylon in our business. How we know it works? We live amongst Babylon, so we see how corrupt Babylon is. See, some bankman freed from the F FTX thing. Two of his um, closest um, working partners have uh, confessed to fraud and criminal activity. Yet still, this man's still free. And he will be, he will get away based off the fact of who he is and who he's, who he's connected to. Because ooh, the FBI, the whoever, the whoever, is corrupt. And, 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 and he was actually brought, they were actually brought in to protect him. All right, you know something? I just said some things that, all right, is, might be, there might be corruption in the FBI and all of that thing. So it shouldn't, we here decide kind of know how the belly of the beast set. So we are not going to be an advocate for it. It's Jamaicans at home, love or no, but I want to love the foreign thing more than anybody else. If I want good service in Jamaica, I talk like a foreigner. Where if, if where they look at me and they think that I'm local, it's like, oh, oh, oh this guy. In the line. I, I go in and I speak a little Canadian. Eh? As long as you're not trying to push like you know more, for the most part, you get to go. So at the end of the day, you uh, don't treat each other the way we should um, locally. So we overseas, and I, it wouldn't even be a privilege. I would say those who live in Jamaica have the privilege. And I know each person have their own um, experience. It's rough. All right, let's, let's rewind it. Some people have faced it real hard at Jamaica. Jamaica messed up for them. It's like hell for them, honestly, frankly. But you know that some people facing it real badly here in the States and in North America and Canada. And it's like a, a hotter hell or a, a freezing hell for them sometimes. <laughs> you understand me? So at the end of the day, someone said we should not be seeking happiness. A lot of us seek happiness. I think we should just seek purpose. And a lot of us overseas trying to fulfill our purpose. You understand? So just just give it give it a break about this this foolishness about um you know what you call it here um people in the diaspora being um what you call it here um a peace. I'm gonna take a break and I'm gonna come back. Alright back like a shot after that sorry um uh, listen this is not a vaccine thing, all right? Leaving, leaving from that, I think we're talking about that. About yeah, that's like, let's not let me not become too opinionated. It's almost half an hour after that, and we want to read the book. So let's read the book. Because if I go any longer, then I will have to um, put this aside and uh, start all over with something else. So let me read the book. So this one is called. Hold on, let us change the music and we'll play some Enya. Kinda, Enya is a little bit, um, I'd put it this Let me try the Enya part. And... What I realized playing this thing back a second ago, do you know, is that there's this buzzing sound which I do not get. I wonder if I put in, um, I don't know, put on reverb delay elimination 
try the elimination button. Maybe that will work. Let me just listen out that sound. Be right back in a sec. Nope, sound like crap, same way. So I'm uh, getting this a lot of static and balance. And let me try, probably if I put, let me put this on it. Put on the sponge and then listen it back again. Hear that sound, let's see. Okay, I'm gonna keep the sponge on. Um, let's see where we're gonna go now. So we're gonna go into the reading of Born for Dead. by Loregon this is chapter 5 and this one is called End of the Game so the last chapter we read was Blood for Blood, Fire for Fire and in that one it talked about um, guilty and PMP and how they both parties were formed Buster Monty on one side real name was Buster sorry, Alexander Buster Monty so his real name was Alexander Clark did the Bustamante because of the, I think the Latin favor he said, and um, Norman Manley forming the PMP. And both were closely affiliated, are actually, um, they were, they were, they were, uh, what you say, offsprings from the, the BITU and the, another union. Can't remember what that other union is. Um, so moving forward, and, and, and it's actually, you know, was illuminating about Buster Mantle himself, which that's another project I have to go take and study some more about Mr. Buster. So moving forward on Endgame, chapter 5, Born to Dead, 30 minutes into that. Here's my glasses. I'm going to try to do the glasses again. No, it's the first time I'm trying it sitting down here and all already I don't feel comfortable. A little bit comfortable. So I can read comfortably. Get some comfort. Probably lean back. Oh then how do I get the mic? Uh I move the mic. Oh breaking it. Cheap mic, come on. Alright, hopefully it's still here. And I full power. Yeah. Come on. I know. Let's go. Endgame. Born for Dead by Lori Gunn. Uh, journeying through the Yardy Underworld. Really good to go back. Endgame. Dixie's Emerald and Ruby inlay glinted in the lamplight when he smiled. Okay. Dixie's emerald and ruby inlay glinted in the lamplight when he smiled. Ruby. He was a good he was in a good mood this night. Settled on Bramble's veranda to reason about the seventies and his days as the Tel Aviv passed up ranking. Oh Dixie the guy from the Tel Aviv. Yeah he was mentioned in the lamp wait so long before I get into the message that I need with this one. What Dick is the ex 
Tel Aviv passed the top ranking. It was a Saturday night, and King Chubby, Central's best DJ, had set up a pair of booming speakers and superstar corner for a street dance that would go on until dawn. Probably if I bring up the chair. Ah. A bit better. Much better. The sound system was pounding through the neighborhood with dancehall tunes by Super Theater and Ninja Man, healing the rule of the dance. And they was no longer just dance, no, they were Dan Dan Gagas. Dan Dadas, but she said Dan Gagas. Um, veritable gods of the streets. Brambles pointed out, pointed out the girls from Protein Posse. The local queens who had named their crew because they were eating well. Now that their boyfriend, Hoopsies, a foreign, a, a foreign, were sending down money from crack sales in Miami and New York. Come on, eat. How do we so? Them nice up themselves for the dance, Bramble said approvingly. Then he looked at me in my habitual khaki shirt and limp cotton shirt damp with sweat. He sucked his feet in affectionate contempt. <laughs> Why, how do you have affectionate contempt? Mm, I can't ever do that. I never see an American daughter dressed like you. Why you not put on something, Chris? You all the time look like you... You, you all the time look like you some kind of war correspondent. <laughs> She's all right, Dixie preferred. She dressed poor. Gunshots rang out from the corner, and we all sprang to the shard top wall to see what was happening. The super stud crowd was running up faster lane with police deep in hot pursuit. Bramble's daughter Natalie burst in through the gate, laughing and panting. Boy, toss a firecracker right under the police car, she gasped. Everyone off a scatter, chubby well vexed. But the speakers were still, the speakers were still cranked up to the max, and soon everyone was back on the corner as it must We get so, we get so we don't even run from gunfire now, Bramble said mournfully. We run to see what's up. Dixie wiped the beads of sweat condensing from his red stripe and began to talk, meddling his own biography into the days when Manley was Prime Minister and the power of the gang reached its crescendo. He had been a major player on the passive stage, and he looked back to his performance with a mixture of sorrow and nostalgia. Before there was Tel Aviv, he began, well before Manley's time. The big massive here in Central was the Max Gang, and that was my type. Massive is just another word for a gang. Well, well, I did sometimes, just at the end of the 60s, in the general penitentiary over there in Raytown. And while I was in, I kind of lost touch with the runnings on the street. There was a tailor we called Linear, Liniment, and Pastor Lane. A guy who dressed sharp and got some ranks behind it. When I came out, the was controlling things with the marks. A 
According to Brambles, the word on the neighborhood wire was that Dixie had bowed and become a batty man, a homosexual in general penitentiary. And that is and that this is why the youths from the Max had turned against him. But he recouped his former status by killing the man who started the Batman rumor, another Max member called Buckles. Dixie and Linamens resolved their differences and together they forged the new gang they called Tel Aviv. That was around the time when PMP won its first general election since independence in 1972 and Michael Manley became Prime Minister. Central was his constituency and his victory meant that the neighborhood was finally going to get some hope in the development project. It also meant that Central Posse would start lining up for their share of their patronage gravy. There was already ominous signals that the gangs were calling the shot, the shot downtown. After testing their power during the West Kingston riot, the JLP, Phoenix and the PMP Stranglers had, been, had begun colonizing other sections of the city. Now that Manley and PMP were in power, it was clear that the PMP's garrisons were going to carry superior force. I can still remember the day when Manley came down here campaigning just before the 72 election, Bramble said. He was set to speak at a rally right here on East Queen Street, at the football field where you and I met that first day. He was so proud and happy like this was his own constituency after all, and he didn't expect any trouble here. Well, the man walked straight into a three-way gunfight between the old Max, Tel Aviv, and the Skull. The Skull was one of them little JLP cadres that, had a, had the, that the Phoenix from West were infiltrating, was in, from West was infiltrating Central Wit, and it was based on the last street corner. He shook it sadly and Dixie nodded in agreement. We was all trying to demonstrate our power that day, Dixie said. It come in like we knew Manley would be the next Prime Minister. So we was all trying to muster around to show him who ruled down here. When the shot started fire, I went over the chain link fence with everybody else. Bramble said. Everyone had to run from the gun, but I was there to take pictures. So I was close enough to Manley to see him face, and I will never forget what that was like him never really believed what him said. After Manley won, the PMP started pouring money and talent into his constituency, sending some of the party's most progressive men into Central to organize youth groups, sports clubs, and community development projects. Party member Arnold Bertram worked out a mom momentary truce between Tel Aviv, the Mac, and the Skull, whose members were warring in the neighborhood. A tall, lanky man whose dark face reached quickly into a smile. Bertram had an engaging manner that was part sufferer and part canny politician. Yes, that sounds like Arnold Bertram. <laughs> and a very distinct face. Soon after he, he brought Central's three gang to the peace table, the PMP made him Minister of Information and Culture. By 1973, things were quiet on in the constituency, and the tribal warriors were thinking more along the lines of football clubs and youth groups than, than guns. But the Skull Gang was still Central's loose cannon, taking orders from the Phoenix in West Kingston. It 
Nets leaders were two brothers, Roddy and Rocky, Rocky Nesbitt. Roddy and Rocky Nesbitt. The ties between them and Siaga's labor rights gunmen were tight. There was always too much tension. People said, too many dogs, not enough bones. You see, Manley was already getting into socialism. And it seemed like everyone got politicized all of a sudden. So tell, so tell if he got bigger after we start calling ourselves socialized. Use them like the position. But Roddy and Rakai and the rest of the skull got vexed with the situation and just pulled away. They felt like they were left out of the action and there was more to be had. There was more to be had. Guns and such from the brothers over in Tivoli Garden. Them man there didn't want a piece. In the bad man business, pieces besides the pot. How is youth and youth going to set themselves up? Distinguish themselves in a their era without fire. The gangs in Central Kingston were crucial to the PMT's ability to control its territory there. But the West Kingston Passage had the greatest firepower and ranks because the sprawling slums and shantytowns of the city's west had long been prime sprawling grounds for outlaws. The Stranglers and Phoenix had been contended for jobs and patronage in the West since the mid-60s, but the Stranglers along with other West Kingston gang, loosely allied with PMP, did not really become part of the political equation until their party came into power. When that happened in 1972, West Kingston's gang's geography underwent a change. As all of the other forces began lining up behind the ruling PMP, Kivali Guns became the only real bastion of JLP gun power in the area. By the mid-70s, one paladin had emerged in the PMP's concrete jungle as the era leader, a top-ranking tribalist called uh, Red Tony, Red Tony Welch. Okay, Tony Welch. His patron was Anthony Spalding, the minister of housing for the PMP. Jungle, as Red Tony Welch domain was usually called, had been a hotbed of gang activity for a long time. The neighborhood lies north of Tivoli, on the other side of Maypen Cemetery, and a ghetto known as Denham Town. Jungle and Tivoli had been fighting each other over politics for years. To make things even worse, Jungle backed up against another shanty town called Rima. The two armed gangs faced each other across a no man's land that ran along 7th Street. By the mid-1970s, 7th Street had become one of West Kingston's worst war zones. The enmity between Jungle and Rima stemmed from the usual party, but it deepened after Monday came to power because of the patronage lavished on concrete jungle. The sufferers of Rima had no patron. They had been the stepchildren of the JLP ever since Siaga bulldozed, bulldozed Baka Wall and hundreds of its displaced squatters fled to Rima for refuge. But Siaga he funneled all the money and jobs into Tivoli, and the people of Rima had nothing. Now they were trapped along the foreign lines between West Kingston, West Kingston's two most deadly political parties, the Tivoliites and Welch's country, Trumbull. All but invincible now that Welch 
all but invincible, or that Welch enjoyed the protection of Anthony Spalding. Red Tony Welch was a Dan of Concrete Jump, the gangster's diplomat who dealt with Spalding and got jobs for the jungle and works at all over town. I went pause again and just check the, 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 the quality or the lack of quality, the lack nearing. I just want to hear this recording because I know it has a whole heap of buzzing. I can't hear the buzzing through this headphone that I'm above my head. I don't even know if the headphone, um, I don't even know if I'm recording properly. It could be a shame because I don't want to have to but let me get back. Okay, we are back and without the contraption. Straight up, dollar store. Well, not a dollar store on this. I think this came with one of the phones. Um, headphone into the uh, into the phone to record. That contraption just not working and listening back. As much as this is a little cheapy podcast and just uh, my inside out kind of um, exercise. It can't take people for granted. That is definitely torture to listen, all that static and um, don't make sense. Um, aside of me saying maybe if I'd bought a more expensive device, um, it would work better. Another side of me saying no, there's more to it. There's probably some, probably have to do some research on audio engineering and figure out what's happening and get a good, decent setup because clearly it's not working. And um, it makes no sense to keep touching, trying to um, use the, something, you spend the money so you want to get the benefit of it, but it's not working. I'll use it for something else. So moving forward on Born for Dead, end game. Um, so we're reading about the, the, the gangsters, da 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 the, the, the last sentence. Oh, it's a long ass sentence, man. Jesus, the sentence. Okay. No, they were trapped along the foreign line between West Kingston's two most deadliest political passes, the Tivoliites and Welch's concrete jungle gang. All but invincible now that Welch enjoyed the protection of Anthony Spaulding. Red Tony Welch was a dan of concrete jungle. The gangster's diplomat who dealt with Spalding and got all the jobs for the junglites and work sites all over town. You see, Dixie explained, when he's a sufferer, you can't really deal on a level with, a, with the big man like your local member of parliament, you know. You must have a representative to deal with the MP. And Tony Welch, meanwhile, started to make a name for himself. And Tony Welch, meanwhile, started to make a name for himself doing battles with Rima and Tivoli. And pretty soon he got into position, he got ranks behind him. So when Anthony Spaulding needed a job done, like the firebombing of the tenement yards on Orange Lane, Tony Welch obliged. But even with Welch's dominance in concrete jungle, the neighborhood still sprawled a string of other smaller still spawned a string of other smaller gangs. They sprang from corners named for their toughness, Texas, Angola, Mexico, and each had its own 
little armed squadron. As Dixie said, too many dogs, not enough bones. As they attached themselves like barnacles to the politicians, downtown Kingston became, in the words of one PMP leader, a geography of violence. The violence got worse as Mandy and Siaga hardened the line between the two parties. After 1974, when Manley declared socialism as a, as a platform of the PMP, Siaga went on the war path. He declared the PMP is a right-wing, freedom-fighting opposition, stonewalling Manley at every turn. And the Paladins, in turn, took their cue from the big men uptown. Now the PMP sh shooters started seeing themselves as Cuban-style revolutionaries, and the GLP's gunmen thought they were fighting to save Jamaica from communism. Their gang signals were superficially funny. Labor rights youth refused to drink red stripe beer because the red was a communist color. The PMP sufferers wouldn't touch Heineken beer because it came in a green bottle and green was the color of the GLP. But some of them died because they ordered the wrong beer in the wrong neighborhood or because they unthinkingly went to a dance on the other side of town. Michael Manley lamenting the theoretical but deadly enmity that was splitting the sufferers and turning Kingston into a battleground. Like his father, he recoiled from violence. He had hoped to mobilize Jamaicans into a conscious vanguard for change, and now the power of the gangs marked all of his best intentions. But Manley himself was often obliged to rely on the gunman for protection. When he went into sections of the city where he would have been defenseless without their guns. Many people told me that Winston Boriboy Blake was one of PMP's most notorious enforcers. He saved the lives of Manley and his wife Beverly when a GLP gunman shot at them and Boriboy threw them to the ground, covering their bodies with his own. That was the reason, they said, why Manley made the decision to pay homage to the enforcer by attending his funeral in 1975. Even more frightening was the fact that Mandy seemed unable to rein in his own ministers. There was no stopping warlords like Anthony Spalding and other party members like Dudley Thompson and D.K. Duncan who were equally besotted with the street power they got from their affiliation with the gunmen. Such ties was a badge of honor in the ghettos, the way a politician earned respect. There was another side of this courtship, however, the bitter end game that invariably played out when a gunman got too big and finally challenged a politician himself for supremacy. At that point, the big man quietly ordered the police to lock up the uppity mercenary or gun him down. If he lived, the gunman went to prison, where outlaws from both parties got to know one another and began to see the folly of shedding each other's blood for the politicians. Men like Tony Welch and Bucky Marshall, another shooters for the PMP, would find themselves periodically cooling off in the general penitentiary with JLP rankings like Claude Massop and Briar Mitchell. Or they would have or they would be thrown together in gun courts, the dreaded detention center on Kingston South Camp Road, where those accused of gun crimes went to rot. There they sweated out the days and months, crammed into reeking cells too small to lie down in, eating from the same slap buckets and being beaten 
with cat or nine tails by the same sadistic warders or being beaten. I was overreading it and think they were being there were some bites by some cats. <laughs> Slap and being beaten with cat or nine tails by the sadistic ward, ward, warders. Even though they came from opposite sides of the political fence, Jill taught them their commonality. This was a lesson with serious repercussions as the politicians later found out. Claudia Massop, Siagas Enforcer in Tivoli, left Jamaica in 1972 for a long stint in England after Manley and the PMP came to power and Massop's fortunes at home were therefore less secure. When he returned in 1977, he was still a Dan in Tivoli and he even began thinking about running for some kind of political office. There was an ugly confrontation between Massop and Siaga himself. When Massop accused his patron of being a warlord who cared nothing for the sufferers, Massop's own awakening—sorry, Massop's own awakening—was mirrored in the prison and street experience of other gunmen. Many of them were then beginning to shift and easily within the confines of their own political alliances. The hard line between the PMP and the JLP was too constraining, so some of the rankings were teaming up for bank work, which is rubbish, and ganja dealing. Claudia Massop had a lieutenant in Tivoli named Baya Michel, and Baya began hanging out with PMP gunmen from Warka Hill and Concrete Jungle. Kappa, the Robin Hood renegade from Warka Hill, had a girlfriend in Tivoli and was often seen there in the company of Massop and Mitchell, his former enemies. Meanwhile, Bucky Marshall, the PMP shootist, was in jail, having killed a popular youth from Concrete Jungle. The victim was a protege of another jungle gunman, Anthony Starkey Tingle. And although Starkey was PMP, he too had made some friends on the other side of the fence. When Marshall heard that Claude Massop was back from England, and he just might be persuaded by Starkey to take revenge for the slaying Marshall had done. The jail gunman started fearing for his own life after he came out. He began making overtures to mass up forces through the grapevine that ran from General Penitentiary to the streets. By the time the rankings downtown force field was exerting a gravity, by that time the rankings downtown force field was exerting a gravitational pull beyond the ghettos. They had become authentic cultural voices for the entire nation of sufferers, and their outlaw exploits were the stuff of myth. Everyone knew they were powerful and dangerous. So were the politicians. But the politicians would never belong to the sufferers' true tribe. Reggae stars like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh came from the same roots as the outlaws. And even through the singers, and even though the singers had, had, had written to international fame, they kept their old ties to the ghettos and had, that had birthed them and their music. Although Marley had moved far uptown from his old trench town aunts into a breezy great house on Hope Road, formerly owned by Island Records, Island Record magnate uh, Chris Blackwell, he was still close to Claudia Massop and Bucky Marshall, burning many spliffs with Massop in the Hope Road yard and scamming to fix the 
occasional horse race at Caymanas Park. But the alliance between the reggae superstar and his old friends in the underworld could turn deadly in a heartbeat. When someone shot Marley in his yard just before the 1976 election, Kingston buzzed with rumors that the CIA was behind the attack. But someone, but some said he had been set up by the Tivoliites after a racetrack scam went sour. See, did anybody know uh, how many persons knew that Bob Marley was behind racetrack scams? <laughs> it seems as if the rule of the gunman was just another feature of Jamaica's downhill slide. By 1977, Manley was losing ground in a series of small disasters, protracted and ultimately failed negotiations with the International Monetary Fund, a friendship with Fidel Castro that unsettled many Jamaicans, ever prickly where Cuba was concerned, and alienated the United States, an entrenched establishment that was turning against him, and an opposition led by Siaga that was obviously arming itself to the teeth. A rising panic swept through Kingston as Michael Manley and Jamaica's experiment in democratic socialism both began to run on empty. So Manley and Jamaica's experiment in democratic socialism was starting to run empty apparently. And the people were panicking. The sufferers in central Kingston felt the pressure drop and some of them were the ones who would soon pay for this political anxiety with their lives. In late 1977, a little cabal of rogue officers from the Jamaica Defence Force, loyal to Manley and convinced that the police force was in the Siaga's pocket, hatched a plot to destroy the JLP posse in Southside. This may be the Green Bay killing. The Labourite Skull Crew was still massed behind the Nesbitt brothers on Law Street. The posse youths had ingratiated themselves with a formidable what that? Frank Sisan Nun. Frank Sian Frank Sisan Nun. Frank Sisan Nun. Frank Sisan Nun. Francis Can Nun. Or a formidable Franciscan Nun, Sister Bernadette who ran the Holy Family School on Southside. Sister, as everyone called her, had been living in the ghetto long enough to know the wisdom of keeping cool, of keeping cool runnings in her area, and she pacified the ever-restless call men by giving them occasional work at Holy Family. All right, so Holy Family, my, my, my wife went to Holy Family. That is how close this is to us. And yeah, we have some stories. Wow, she would probably love this part um, or not because it does have some memories. But good memories too. I mean, she was a runner there. She was a little speedy runner at Holy Family. They thought that she would be the Olympic runner. <laughs> Anytime she sees Shelly and Fraser, who she loves so much, she loves Shelly. She admires Shelly. In fact, she admires all the other female runners. Um, um, but she give them on, on what she term unreserved love. She love especially Ashley and Fraser. She always say that's how me used to stay in a little bit and can run fast. <laughs> Anyhow, in return they guarded the school. 
so the gunman guarded the Holy Family School that my wife went to. Wow. In return, they guarded the school and the last three training center next door. That that was hardly a steady source of revenue. You know, when my wife, I went cook, I'm gonna cook a nice, I'm gonna go take out, I'm gonna take a pause and go take out some meat to, um, to tar. I'm gonna cook a nice pot of curry chicken for my wife this evening. Because just reading this is reminding me of the journey that she has been through and that, you know, she deserves, she really deserves every blessing that she can, that can be bestowed on her. So let me, I'm gonna take a pause and I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna go tart some chicken to curry it for boss lady when she comes in. Okay, I am back. Cue the music. All right, so I just took out some chicken so it can tar out so I can make some curry or something for, well, it, no, she says she doesn't like when I, when I stew it down. She do it better because I put sugar in it. It's not sugar. I have my secret recipe that I put in the stewed chicken. So it's have a little sweetness. And I remember Miss Tucker used to sweeten our stewed chicken with sugar. So I sweeten my own with honey. <laughs> anyway, moving forward. Da, 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 da. So go back to Sister Bernadette. And she pacified her ever restless Coleman by giving him a coach occasional work at Holy Family School. In return, they guarded the school and the last street training center next door. But it was hardly a steady source of revenue. Instead, they turned for money to the housing project the PMP had started building a few blocks away on Barry Street. But the work began, the, but the work grown to a halt because the skull men kept fighting other rankings over who got work on the site. This dire struggle was an affront to the PMP's ability to control its neighborhood and the police were doing nothing about it. So the army began putting some of its men into the field. One of them was Major Ian Robinson. Yep, this is the Green Bay. Because, yep, anyway, a gunslinger who liked showing the police how to do their job. All right. A little bit about Green Bay before I get too far into it. I used to work down on East Street, East and Barry Street. Was it East and Barry Street? And I met this guy who he was, they said that he was a madman. He was insane. He, was, he, 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 he had a house, but he was always on the street. He looked like a street man that someone takes care of. He actually stole a radio out of my car, but that's another story. And he was one of the persons who survived the whole Green Bay stuff. And um, I remember reading an article because the firm I was working for had a lawyer there. And I, read, and, I, and, and I read an article that he represented this. The first time I saw the name Major Ian Robinson was, that was in connection with that lawyer who they said he represented Ian Robinson and the government during that ensuing court case about this thing. Uh, funny enough, that lawyer actually wrote a reference letter for me when I was moving to Canada. <laughs> so that's that. 
So the, 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 so the army began putting men of its, some of its men into the field. One of them was Major Ian Robinson, a gunslinger who liked showing the police how to do their job. He was a small man, recalled the Gleaner journalist David Acosta, quite fearless and much valued by the army to engage in shootouts. There were instances where the police had criminals holed up in parts of some parts of Kingston and there was so much gunfire that they were hesitant to go in. Then Robinson would show up with his six guns blazing and, at great personal risk, go in and shoot to death three or four men. That would put down the uprising. Robinson knew that the skull was a thorn in the PMP side. To infiltrate this labor squadron in Southside and eradicate it once and for all, Robinson began to assemble an odd cast of characters from the military, from the Army's Military Intelligence Unit, MIU. The MIU Captain Carl Marsh was put in charge of the eradication squad, working under the shadow of a Cuban advisor known only as Montero, a man who disappeared later on. The infiltrator was a Southside youth called Junior Soul. Douglas, who started hanging around the construction site on Bar Street just before Christmas 1977. The time of year when the sufferers were especially desperate for money and putting out the word that the army needed men with guns to guard the work site. The news spread through Southside like lightning and young men start jockeying for their chance to get the guns. Then the army puts its Matahari to work. A lieutenant named Susan Hake, who lured a dozen outside laborers, who lured a dozen outside laborers to a hotel, where she received them in a flamey, flamey nightgown, not flimsy, it's flimy, in a flimy nightgown, and promised that they'd soon get their weapons, along with three hundred dollars for their guard work. Everything was ready for the, the massacre that followed. On the night of January 4th, Junior Soul went to Southside with the drivers of two vehicles and found Roddy Nesbitt, along with nine other suspected gang members. He told the men that soldiers were waiting out by Green Bay, a army firing range west of Kingston, to give them the promised guns. The Saudis were suspicious at first, but decided to go ahead with the plan, and the little caravan left Southside for Green Bay. It was still dark when they got there. Alright, so give you an example of where Green Bay is. Because I used to ride my bicycle go up Rodney's Harm, which is around there. Green Bay. What was it? What used to call it? Forum. Forum Beach. Forum Hotel. And Rodney's Harm. I used to ride my bicycle and sit down on the road that leads up to Green Bay Firing Range. It's about 10, if so long, minutes out of Kingston going towards the the west um, along the south there but going towards the west um, crossover causeway um, you can take um, back road they used to call it and go there quickly and that's where they would um, probably most likely use I remember now that we talk about it I remember my father used to point out this spit of land across and he used to say Edward Siaga owned that land and there was a plane there always some planes there that, that land is all gone now but I wonder if anybody remember that spital and across on the right hand side going towards Portmore, towards Passage Fort. So let's say you take that bend, you would go left to go back road to go Green Bay, but you don't go left. You keep on the road and you go 
towards passage forward and the right hand side there was this platter land and small airplanes one or two small private airplanes would be on that chain link yard anybody remember that and my father used to say and this because i read in this i would never remember my father used to say a siaga owned that the siaga land that, that siaga land or something to that effect anyway keep going Da, 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 da. On the night of January 4, Junior Soul went to Southside. Oh, I was saying how to get to Green Bay. So you take the left off that highway, go around back road, and just keep past, you pass Forum Hotel, past Rodney's Army, kind of climb the hill. A lot of maca, a lot of mangrove, a lot of maca. It, 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 it's tropical desert. Or tropical, yeah, it's a kind of, it's not desert, it's a lot of foliage, but it's maca foliage, like maca. I don't know how I didn't expect as a youth. I didn't worry about the alligator or something. As a big man now, I would even probably go up there and go sit down. But I was sitting down there at night and look over on Port Royal and just reimagine what happened in, with the wars and the, the ships coming through and the battles because there were gun holes. There were these holes or these walls with, um, that held um, cannon, cannon guns. And they were pointed towards Port Royal. And on the Port Royal side, I would imagine that there were cannons pointed towards this side and that was how they protected the Kingston Harbour because the ship was, would have to come in between that area to enter the harbour and those cannon guns were pointed on from either side of the harbour to protect the harbour. So I would sit down and just reimagine those days and just, you could just feel the energy there. But going further up the hill, I would have hit the Green Bay um, soldier camp gate. I rode up there once and I saw the gate and I saw the police, the soldier gate post and I just turned back. It, there was no further for me. But the Saudis, west of Kingston, he told the men that the soldiers were waiting at Green Bay, an army fighting range, west of, firing range, west of Kingston, to give them the promised gun. The Saudis were suspicious at first, but decided to go ahead with the plan and a little caravan left Southside for Green Bay. It was still dark when I got there. Soldiers met the crew and escorted them down to the targets set up in the sand at the water's edge. They told the men to bunch up and before the victim knew, knew what was happening, a dozen hidden machine guns opened fire on them. Roddy Nesbitt had already gotten down in the sand and now he started crawling for his life towards the dense Makathorn bushes that surrounded the cove. Yep. He heard his friends dying as he crawled. Glenroy Richards, Southside's champion soccer player, cried for his girlfriend as he bled to death in the sun. Valerie, Valerie, Ruddy heard him mourn. I tell you, I never want to go and know I am dead. Valerie, okay, Valerie, Valerie, Ruddy heard him moan. I tell you, I never want to go. I know I'm dead. I know I'm dead. Five of the men, the ten intended victims, were killed outright. Ruddy and four others miraculously escaped. Norman Spencer, one of the survivors, heard his friend Ian Brown call out his name and beg for him to wait. As the two of them crawled through the sun, another survivor, Anthony Daly, caught up with them. I am an Igon, Daly said laconic, I, I, laconically. The soldier that shot out one of his eyes. Delroy Griffiths, the last survivor, made it to the water's edge and swam out to sea. He was rescued by a fisherman. 
By then, the sun was up and the death squad had radioed back to headquarters at Oppard Camp with the bad news that five men had escaped. They had one job. Soldiers were immediately dispatched to Southside to hunt down the survivors and execute them. They were told to look for men with cuts and scrapes on their skins. But Roddy Nesbitt outwitted the MIU. He led the wounded survivors straight to Holy Family School, where Sister Bernadette hid them and then called the police. They were glad for the chance to embarrass their army rivals and they took the survivors into protective custody. Out at Green Bay, Major Ian Robinson was taking pictures of the five dead bodies sprawled in the sand. He was still sure the survivors would be found and killed. And then he would give out the Army's official story that soldiers, that soldiers posted to the firing range for target practice had been ambushed by, by Southside gunmen and had fired back in defense. Robinson's photograph showed the long shadows of three soldiers standing over the dead men. He took the pictures back to Topard camp and, in the excitement of the moment, left them on his desk. Someone brought them to David DeCaster at the Gleaner. I didn't know quite what to do with them, DeCaster said. The army story was that the shootout had taken place at midday, but the pictures of the dead men clearly showed the, shoot, the, the, the soldiers' long shadows. That meant they could only have been taken in the morning or the afternoon. And by the afternoon, the story was already out. So we knew it might have been in the morning. And slowly, the army's story began to unravel. An inquest into the Green Bay Massacre began two months later. Although the jury eventually reached a verdict that unspecified persons were criminally responsible for the slains, no one in the army was ever sent to prison. Criminal charges were brought against each soldiers one was freed for lack of evidence in 1981 and the remaining seven defendants were released a year later. After the government entered a plea of null, what that, null prosecute, most of the officers involved in the plot left Jamaica for other islands in the Caribbean and a few went to the United States. Ah oh boy. Anyhow, Manley's responsible responsibility for what came to be known as the Green Bay Massacre remains an open question. There are those who think it was carried out on his orders. Others see it as Siaga's brainchild, even though the victims, the victims were labor rights. Siaga would have balked at sacrificing a few Soyaga would not have balked at sacrificing a few expendable sufferers in order to smear the PMP. Yeah boy, anyhow, this is so depressing. Brambles knew all five Green Bay survivors. Most of them were still in Southside, living and part and partly living. Delroy Griffiths was a crackhead, prancing through the street like a puppet on wires and begging everyone for money to get high. Roddy Nesbitt was more in control of himself, even though he drank too much and liked his cocaine. I don't know if it's Delroy Griffiths is the guy who robbed the radio out of my car because he sounds like him the crackhead and was always begging for money. Come on, wow, what a coincidence.
Delroy. I had a, the thing is, I had a Delroy, and it's funny, the Delroy that worked with me at the place that I worked, we used to start, stand out the front there, down by the bottom, and he was the one who introduced me to this guy, but I don't know if he had said he was Delroy also. And they said that he lived in a yard. I remember there was a rumor like he lived in a yard with, and he would play with skulls, like the, 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 the skulls of people's bodies that, that, he, that he, he delved in that kind of stuff in his yard. He had a garden of skulls and bones. And it's someone I would talk to, but he was always, demented. he looked demented, but demented with a reason, if memory. He didn't look evil, he just looked opportunist, demented, if memory, if, 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 I, if, I, this, if I'm describing it. He didn't look like a boy, I'm a bad man and just a thief and just wanna, he looked like he was demented, but there was something decent behind him. So when he stole my radio out of my car, so I would park my car along Barry Street, right in front of our building there. Sometimes I would park in the car park, but sometimes I park. And it was an idiot car. It has another story. My, my Mini. <laughs> oh, my Mini. And I bought it from a soldier at Upper Camp. I went Upper Camp to collect that car. Ah, oh, boy. And then they were stole. They robbed my money when I went to Ramdial. No, not Ramdial. Jeez. I went to a place to buy a scrapyard to buy um, a dashboard and a gas tank for it because I didn't have a gas tank. What I had to do was run the hose into a gallon bottle of fuel. That was my gas tank, an actual plastic gallon bottle. Jagars, Jagais, Jagais, that's the name of the place I would go. Jagais, Jagais, I think, was the name of the scrapyard that I went to. And they wrapped me there. Anyway, going forward, Preambles knew all five of them. Most of them were still in Southside, living and partly living. Delroy Griffiths was a crackhead, prancing through the streets like a puppet on wires and begging everyone for money to get high. Roddy Nesbeth was more in control of himself, even though he drank too much and liked his cocaine. If Roddy is Roddy after me, Bramble said one, one afternoon. We were sitting on the porch while Ricky and Natalie did their homework. But Natalie was in a playful mood and was laughing as she tried to style my hair, even though it was too short to even comb. But we, were, we better find him soon, Bramble's news. He's go back and forth to Brooklyn. His brother juggling coke up there. All right, before we get into the Ruddy story, there was something I wanted to mention about Southside. I don't know if I should wait to the end, but let me just jump in here. My workplace was down in Southside. And I remember going to a, a lane a few streets to the east, going towards Raytown to get a plastic. I had bought a minivan, I had bought a Nissan van, they used to call it the Honey Wagon. I had bought it off the internet from a company called Zulfigar, Zulfigar Motors, Zulfigar Motors online. And they shipped it to Jamaica for me. Nice Nissan Vanet, dual AC, seven seater, was it? One, two, three, four, five, six, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
nine, nine seater. How was it? One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. A nine seater. There's a nine seater. And dual AC and you know, and it had cloth seats and I didn't want the seats to get damaged because I was running it as charter. I would take home the people from the workplace at night after work. I was working there as a, as a, as a PC, PC clerk, they call me, a systems clerk, systems clerk, computer clerk, right to the law firm. And um, so the clerk, everything is clerk, not officer, not tech, it's clerk. And um, so I was a systems clerk, a PC clerk. And, but I bought this van and I was taking folks home because I was a hustler. After work, I would take home, I had a little contract to take home the canteen staff. One of the canteen staff, mom actually is the mother of a, um, sorry, one of the canteen staff is the mom or mother of a, of a successful Jamaican athlete. Um, nice lady too, very, very quiet, Awesome lady. I, myself and the canteen staff get along. Awesomely. I love the canteen. It was a family of them. Miss Winnie, our daughter Georgia, you had Faye, you had the canteens. We got, and, and they would put my food, take care of good. Oh man, I just, I just feel for the canteen food right now. Miss Winnie food. Miss Winnie, God bless your soul. I know you probably passed by now, man, because she was an older lady. Uh, but the canteen staff was, was a close-knit set of people and I would take them home. They lived in Kingston, more to the north of... So it wasn't far. I think there was a set that I did take to Mona. I think it was Miss Mooney who had probably finally got enough money to rent and move out of the ghetto and she lived up Mona's side. I can't remember. But I would drop off people along the way up Mountain View Avenue, blah, 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 and get up to Mona, drop them off and go back home to Portmore. I lived over closer to Green Bay side, Portmore, and at night. So that's how I used to hustle that, that, that little vanity. But I needed to protect the seats because it was cloth seats and I had to protect the honey wagon. And I, someone told me about this guy who was very, very skilled and talented in the ghetto down south side. And I went a couple lanes down and this guy st stitched or tailored some a thick plastic, never forget it, a thick plastic, bubbly plastic, nice thick plastic and he made the best seat covers because it had beautiful seats but they were clad, the best seat cover ever made. And I put them on the seats and I zipped them up and I covered my seats. But you could still see the cloth through it because it was transparent plastic. And it was well made. We stitched the plastic together. And I always said that was going to be a money maker. I always said when I get to foreign, I'm going to reach out back to him and let him stitch them and make them. And we're going to a partnership and I sell them in overseas and he met them in Jamaica. That was something that I always thought I was going to do. I never did it. But, you know, that was a south side thing. Somehow I didn't even have his, have his number, I couldn't find his number. And, you know, life happens. But that is just a testament to the skills and the, and, 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 the, and, the, and the gift that resides in the ghetto. Because if I had done my duty and exposed that young man to the world, 
he would have revolutionized the way they make car seat covers. Because you could now have a regular car seat, buy a cloth car seat, don't pay the premium for leather or what have you, and then have this guy just build the most, not the idiot Walmart or Canadian tire car seat. It build a nice and it make pattern in it, and then that pattern just accentuate over the original seat. That guy from Southside did that. Can't remember his name. But anyway, moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. So he has to meet Ruddy. So he's gonna, Brambles is gonna get the, 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 the author, Laurie Guns, to meet Ruddy. Because Ruddy is juggling back and forth between Jamaica and Brooklyn, where his brother is juggling some coke. We found Ruddy a few days later, perched on a stool in his favorite rum shot. So Ruddy is one of the survivors from the Green Bay. I was tongue tied with him at first and couldn't think of anything to say except that I felt like I met him already in the Gleaner stories about the Green Bay inquest at which he was a star witness. A reporter described him as a slender light-skinned man wearing abundant dreadlocks. The description still fits. Although his locks had been trimmed a long time ago, his description would have prepared me for a rum blared far away. His description, no description, sorry. Uh, no description would have prepared me for the rum blared far away look in Ruddy's eyes. He spoke softly and it was impossible for me to hear him above the trouble of the rum shop jukebox. We can't reason here, he said. Too much ears around this place. Let go breeze out down the road. We got into my car and headed out along the Palisados towards Port Royal, a good place for reason about piracy and politics. The afternoon sun blazed over the narrow road, making it shimmer, and a hot wind carried the smell of sea rock from the open water. When we reached the town, Roddy wanted to chill out with some ganja, so we bought a little twist of brown paper, wrapped some herb from a fisherman behind the police station. Roddy squatted on the black sand, squinting into the harsh sunlight and looking across the harbor to the city while he rolled his spliff. Then he was ready to reason. We went on a sidewalk bar where gigantic land crab materialized and started crawling its way up my skirt. When I freed it gingerly without shaking, Ruddy flashed me a wide approving grin. Data level, he said to Brambles. She cool. The data level, he said to Brambles. She cool. So I just asked him to remember Green Bay and put the details together in pieces while he was assembling, a, like he was assembling a jigsaw puzzle. Most of we rastas, you know, not labor rights. That was a thing. We had influence with the youth and youth in our area, but we were never really on the political side of things. We were independent, like free agents, and nobody could have really truly controlled we. We wasn't in nobody's pocket, and we would take money from either side. Bramble smiled at me across the table and raised one eyebrow. He always said that men like Roddy were nothing but lumpen capitalists, meaning they were about as far from political vanguard as anyone would be. Their lives had taught them that loyalty to any politician was a pure folly and anyone could buy them. So there was a housing scheme going up, Roddy went on, and as you know, that was the only work theory we have the, the, we have in the air at the time. So when Junior Souls started coming around, saying that there was some boss man going to give with guns and money 
to guard the site we jump in but did but didn't you think it sounded suspicious i asked sis really answered his face wear his face away mask it was the christmas and all we have baby mother and them asking for a thing and thing plus the army business was a draw we see some soldier boys start patrolling south side and them deal with we pan a level not like the cops they fight the, the finger not so fast pan the trigger so when Juna tell i it was the army in my work for it kind of sound martial and militant i like that but to this day i don't know what what save we why i dropped down in the sand before the gun opened up i guess i was in a tactical frame of mind and when the soldiers told us to bunch up by those targets something told me to stand oblique like never to stand in to the, not never to hand in to them and what to them i asked myself miss oh to stand oblique like never to hand it to them and what to them i asked myself sis really smile i'd been out green bay several times by then to walk around the cove and i tried to crawl through the mackers thorn bushes they look exactly like the crown of thorns on christ's head oh i she thought now i've been out to green bay several times by then to walk around the cove and i tried to crawl through the mackers thorn bushes they look exactly like the crown of thorns on Christ's head. The sandy part of the cove was, is small and the rest is jagged limestone. And Roddy had been barefoot, wearing nothing but shirt and trousers. When his girlfriend found him later at Sister Bernadette's, she worked for hours to pick the thorns out of his skin. When did you know you, were going, you weren't going to die? I asked. I never begin to feel myself breathe again till I knew I was off that army landing up. There was helicopters flying above and the sound of soldiers shouting from the range. And I knew that if any of them found me in the marker, I would have been dead for true. I saw Ruddy's survival as a miracle, but to him it was all in a day's work. He had been shot so many times that escaping from an army's eradication squad was just another adventure. He recounted the rest of that morning with a sang Freud that had certain cinematic flourish. He crept low through the thorns until he came out into the dirt road that bordered the sugar estate. Luckily, the cane was at its highest, ready for winter's harvest. So Roddy was able to hide from the helicopters all among the spinky stalks. He was so drenched with sweat by the time he staggered out from the cane that a young man standing by the road asked him if he had come from sea. Roddy told him he had come through the swamp and there was no more questions. They walked together to a country shop where Roddy got a steady draft ganja. Then he caught a, ba a bus back to Kingston and went to Last Street in a taxi. I supposed to be a dead man by then, he said, but the dopey go woman style, he laughed and then got serious again. If, Sina, if Sister Bernabette hadn't taken her in, we all would have been dead for true, he said. News of the massacre spread through Kingston Ghettos by the end of the day, sparking a sudden reckoning throughout the gang underworld. It was the outlaws endgame with the politicians, and everyone from Claudia Massop and Bayer Mitchell and to Tony Welch and Bucky Marshall knew that a line had been crossed. It had been wanting to worry one another over scarce scraps from the boss's table 
and to take one another's life in a struggle that had come to resemble some terrifying kind of blood sport. But now, how expendable, sorry, but now they saw how expendable their lives really were. Slowly, a gang truce began to take shape in the tribalized ghettos of Kingston. Beginning on the night of January 5, the men from Tivoli and Rima, concrete jungle and Tel Aviv, began crossing the no man's land that divided them, smoking chalice full of ganja and talking peace. I'm gonna pause here for a second, and um, cause I want to start seasoning that chicken. But give me a pause. Oh shoot, don't tell me I missed all of that. Okay, I'm back. Uh, took a break to see the chicken still frozen, so I have to kind of expedite that process. <laughs> and we are at the third part. Is it the third part I'm in? Or the fourth part? Can't remember. I think it's the third part for um, part three for Endgame and Born for Dead. I actually ran out and did a little shoveling. That's my second shoveling for the day. I should be in Jamaica today. I had a flight planned, but um, with the storm coming, I um, decided to stay because I wasn't going to leave the family to deal with this polar vortex that's coming. So that's the second shovel. What I think I need to do is keep shoveling because the snow is coming down heavy and wet now. And if that heavy and wet snow is allowed to accumulate, it will be murder to um, shovel. I uh, did notice that my neighbor, this driveway was being um, blown um, by another neighbor. And um, I was thinking, hey, if this is the way the Canadians do it, when in Rome, do like the Romans, you know, clearly there's a strategy to it, which is keep shoveling and um, try to mitigate any heavy buildup of this wet, heavy snow, packing snow that's now coming down. All right, so moving to warmer areas, back on the barn for the endgame in Kingston, Jamaica. We're talking about um, what happened at the Green Bay massacre and a survivor of that massacre, um, Roddy, I think his name is, is it Roddy? Roddy, R-O-D-D-Y, Roddy, is, was given his account on how he survived and he was given his account to Laurie Gunst and um, while burning a spliff. And now, as because of the massacre, you know, apparently the gang leaders, um, it became an awakening for them that they are expendable by the politicians. And um, so now they are having somewhat of a coming together on the different fractions. And, you know, smoking chalice full of ganja and talking peace over by the no man's land that divided concrete jungle and Tel Aviv from Tivoli and Rima. All right, so here, here we go continued Roddy's account. 
if you had been there, you might have said it was a miracle. Right, I remember. Everyone, Tony Welch and the Junglites, clad him as a people. Bucky's crew from Matches Lane, the South is massive. All start lick chalice pipe together. We keep dancing each other's area, meet up at Ewer Circle and down at Parade. It was like we rose up as one and just say, no more war. We black sufferers say we're not going to kill one another again so that politicians can stay on top. No man, things going to change now. I remember the remark that Bucky Marshall had made to a Gleaner report as the peace movement spread. This is not political, the outlaw said. This is from we who have felt the pangs of jail. A few journalists like Carl Stone were regulars at rum shops downtown, but many had never before been in the ghettos. Once they heard the eloquence of the streets, they started putting the sufferer's words into print. Let us not sentimentalize them, wrote the gleaners John Hearn. Those that I met were not asking for instant love or trust. They were simply demanding that young black people with few jobs stop killing other young black people with fewer jobs in the name of the two parties whose chief executives looked after each other very well when it came to the matter of handing out well-paid jobs. Every one of them knows that the five men killed at Green Bay were set up for the killing because they were more useful dead than alive. Neville Toiloy, a radical journalist with the pro-manly daily news, put the truth in simple terms. The youths have made it plain that they are not turning against one another for politicians. They are tired of being used. The key as they see it is unity, for it is they who have suffered and died. Even Claudio Massop was ready to put down his guns. The peace will have to last, he said, because our lives depend on it. The youths have been fighting among themselves for too long, and it's only them get dead. Everybody I grew up with is dead. Wow, profound. Profoundly profound. Because, yeah. Our wars, yeah, some of it was political. Because some of the idiots back in the day figured themselves to be important to the political masters. I remember one, what's his name? Jeez, name is on the tip of my tongue. He got killed, and it was something about a politician gave out a case of Heineken and something about grabbing the Heineken, but he, he got killed stupidly. Yeah, he has a, a funny nickname. Bolo? Tolo? No. Teddy? Can't remember. It will come to me when I'm not thinking of it. Brambles had taken a slow photographs during those first euphoric days of the truth. The, the night after we talked to Roddy Nesbeth, he dug through the cardboard barrel where he kept his ar archival stash and pulled out folders full of truth shots. In one, Claudia mass up at his arm around Bucky Marshall, and both men were engulfed in a, by a throng of ecstatic sufferers. Bucky wore his usual knitted tam and mugged like a clown, but, and mugged like a clown, but Claudia, his neck, Encircled by a silver twerk, emanated the dignity of a chieftain. 
Manny and Siaga kept their distance from the truth. It caught Siaga by surprise. He was in Miami when it started, meeting with Iops from his party who had gone into exile and were plotting their return. It is said that he was also parlaying with anti-Cuba, anti-Castro Cubans in Miami who supplied some of JLP's guns. Meanwhile, in Kingston, the Jamaica Council for Human Rights and the city's churches were getting involved in the peace movement, setting up a church advisory committee. Manley made a tentative effort by meeting with, his, with its representatives, as did delegates from the JLP, but Siaga never attended any truce meeting with the Prime Minister. He was, talk, he was talking only with his own gunmen in Tivoli. In the midst of these negotiations, Bob Marley came home. He had left Jamaica more than a year before after the shooting in his uptown yard and had been dividing his time between the United States and England. Claudia Massop had caught a plane to London and persuaded his, own, his old friend to come back. The truce leaders were planning an historic peace concert at Kingston's National Stadium and they wanted Bob Marley there as its star. Kingston registered two seismic tremors on the night he flew in. The One Love Peace concert on April 22 included most of the major reggae artists of the movement. Ras Michael and the Sons of Negus, Jacob Miller, Dennis Brown, Culture and Peter Tosh, who, had been, who was then beginning to record with Mick Jagger. Alright, so let me go over here. Ras Michael and the Sons of Negus, Jacob Miller, Dennis Brown, Culture and Peter Tosh, who was then beginning to record with Mick Jagger. Jacob Miller did his new song about how Green Bay killings are murder. Peter touched lift a spliff on stage and told the crowd, me done, me done, done one peace, me done one peace, me want equality. I'm not a politician. I just suffer the consequences. By the high point, but the high point of the concert was the moment when Marley, when Marley, yeah. But the high point of the, con the concert was the moment when Marley, someone manly, and Siaga on stage, making the leaders class and above his head in a promise of no more war. It was the only time during the truce that the two men came face to face, and it took everything Manley had to get them, Marley had to get them together on stage. The Central Peace Council, an organization by, formed by the sufferers themselves, put pressure on Manley and Siaga to keep the police out of the ghettos. The outlaws knew that otherwise the truce laid them wide open to cops who were eager to make a name for themselves by killing one of Kingston's most wanted. The chairman of the Peace Council was an educated, well-spoken Rastafarian named Trevor Phillips, and I asked Brambles if he knew where Phillips was. That brother had to leave Kingston in a hurry, he said. Once the peace collapsed and the guns started firing again, I don't know where he is now or if he's even alive. Let me say that again. That brother of Philippe Kingston in a hurry, he said. Once the peace collapsed and the gun started fire again. Okay, let me read that again. That brother of Philippe Kingston in a hurry, he said. Once the peace started and the gun started firing again. I don't know how and where he is now. I don't know where he is now or if, or if he's even alive. So third or fourth time was worse than the first and second time. The truth had started to crumble. Even by the time... Marley did the One Love concert. The politicians recognized that peace in the ghetto threatened their status quo, and so they sat back and let the police do their eradication work. 
And on the national political front, the timing of the truth could not have been worse. Siaga and the JLP were pushing hard for Manly to call for early election. And although he held off until 1980, the gun fever was already building to a crescendo downtown. The JLP had been spoiling for revenge since 1976 and its partisans were eager to fight. The PMP began digging in for what promised to be a bloody election campaign. Dudley Thompson, the Minister of National Security and Justice, disavowed the truth and distanced the PMP from the sufferers who had called it. Repudiating the Rastafarian community his party had courted since 1972, he said that I'm on culture, culture does not represent Jamaica. I'm on, like I dash man. I'm on. I'm on culture does not represent Jamaica. This was also a dig at the Rastafarian youths gone down at Green Bay. No angel. No angels died at Green Bay, Thompson said. I have no apologies for those who shout about human rights and police brutality. We have a definite challenge to authority in the form of terrorism. He called the gang leaders mad dogs who needed to be destroyed. The first to die was Dennis Copper Bart, the ranking from Warwick Hill, who had begun hanging out with Claude Massop and the Tivoli Posse. Lulled by the gang's truth into believing that he could cross the line between PMP worker and JLP Westkinson, he was killed by police at the Caymanas Park racetrack in May 1978 in an ambush set up by Lester Jim Brown Coke, the up and coming Don of Tivoli. Brown had set Kappa up to rob the racetrack office and then tipped off the police. He was already jockeying for a position as Tivoli's next godfather. The enforcer who would control the JLP ranks for the coming 19 elections. His rise spelled Massop's doom. The police executed Claude in February 1979. He was riding home to Tivoli just before dawn on a Sunday night, returning from a soccer match in Spanish Town. Three motorcycles, a detachment of squad cars, trailed the, the taxi Massop was sharing with two friends from the Peace Council and they stopped it on Marcus Garvey Drive. When they ordered Massop to get out of the car with his hands in the air, he tried to explain that they were coming home from a game and had no guns. The cop shouted, kill! Massop had time for only one word, wait, one word, wait, before he was riddled with more than 50 bullets. The taxi driver who ran for his life towards the sea was the only one who survived. In the morgue photographs of his corpse, Massop, in, in the morgue photographs of his corpse, Massop looked like uh, lo looked a little like Che Guevara, his dark skin pallid in death. Thousands of sufferers lined up to view his body at the funeral home where he lay in state, and mourners, many of the women, wept in the streets for the gunman they saw as a Robin Hood. One woman remembered the Christmas season. A few months before, when Massops spent more than $1,000 to buy shoes for the people in Tivoli, the PMP ranking in Concrete Jungle stood at attention at his funeral as his funeral procession passed by. The PMP rankings in Concrete Jungle stood at attention at his funeral as a procession. The PMP rankings in Concrete Jungle stood at attention as his funeral procession passed by. So the PMP rankings stood at, at attention at Claudia Massop with a GLP ranking as the funeral procession passed by. 
The cleaners will mutt Perkins, Mutty Perkins, my boy. Ha <laughs> ha. Where the laugh go? <laughs> All right, there go. Um, anarchy is on the land. The center cannot hold. That's Mr. Perkins' word. He who plays by the rules gets shafted. Mutty Perkins used to say that. The gleaners will not want, not Mutty Perkins, no admirer of outlaws, was nevertheless moved to write a eulogy for the slain gunman. Massop is part of the legend of the Wild West. He was by all accounts a pretty rough customer. He faced trial for murder and for shooting with intent. But by good fortune, ruthless management shut the by good fortune, ruthless management, shoddy police work, or the triumph of truth, he was never proven guilty. He survived to become, in the tradition of White Herb, Doc Aldi, and Wild Bill Hitchcock, a gunslinger putting his sinister skill and reputation at the service of peace. But any hope of peace died with Massop. Jamaica was getting ready for an election that would prove to be one of the most violent in its history and a new crop of gunmen went coming up to fight this undeclared civil war. The veterans of the 1970s were either dead or in exile. Baya Mitchell, Massop's best friend from Tivoli, died soon after Massop's murder from a cocaine-induced cerebral hemorrhage. Bucky's, Bucky, Marshall, <coughs> Bucky Marshall fled to Miami, where he started selling ganja and cocaine. He stole a stash, stash from Rakai Nesbitt, the brother of the Green Bay survivor who eventually caught up with Marshall in Brooklyn at the Starlight Ballroom and shot him dead. All right, so <clears throat> a little bit about Massop. Very vague memories for me, but I remember the day it was announced that this man was shot. And I remember pictures and, like, and he was gone down in a, in a, in a hail of a hundred bullets. <clears throat> it wasn't 50, it was a hundred bullets. That's how we got it. And I remember the picture, black and white picture. And I remember they said him shot him under his armpit. And the fact that he was shot under his armpit meant that his hands was up in the, was up in the air. I always remember that how they said they shot him under his arm. And the fact that he was shot and that really enraged the people. I remember my father was talking about it and he was very upset. Said them shot the man on them harm. That means that the man and they were always that was the talk at the bars for, for, for a long while. Whenever we stop at the bars, everybody talk about mass up, cloudy mass up basically. Not cloud mass up, cloudy mass up, cloudy mass up. That's all I would talk about. Cloudy mass up and the fact that he was shot a hundred times under his armpit. Ah boy. Anyway, <clears throat> the migration not was a sign of what was to come the first wave of the Posse Exodus to the United States. In my peregrinations with Brambles and his friends, I was already hearing about Natchez that were making up a name for themselves in Brooklyn and Miami. One night in Central, a young man in brand new clothes sauntered up to me and asked if I heard about a ranking from the neighborhood named Delroy Edwards. Delroy Uzi Edwards, I think, was that guy, Uzi but named Delroy Edwards, who was sending back money and guns for his old friends in Southside. And everyone was talking about Jim Brown, the man who replaced Claude Massop in Tivoli. His, his real name was Lester Lloyd Coke, but no one called him that. He was a big, round-bellied man with a deceptively cheery smile. 
and he started calling himself Jim Brown after the 1967 epic The Dirty Dozen became the movie of the year in Jamaica. The original Jim Brown, one of fo football's most bruising running backs, starred in the movie, the only African-American in the cast that included famous heavies like Charles Branson and Telly Sa Savalas. Jamaican gangsters went crazy for his story about a crew of hardened criminals who was let out of prison to assassinate high-ranking Nazis. From then on, Lester Coke became Jim Brown. Now he was running a posse called The Shower, so named because it rained down bullets on its victim. But the island was too small to hold him. By then, he was shuttling between Jamaica, Miami, and New York, and The Shower was becoming the mother of all passes in the United States. There's nothing for them here anymore, Brambles said. One night as we walked back to Central after the Raytown street dance, everyone wants to fashionize up north. Get rich in New York in a New York minute and come home big and broad. But maybe they never come home at all, except in a coffin for the dead house man. Okay, so that ends, and I can reread it. There's nothing for them here anymore, Brambles said one night as we walked back to Central after the Raytown street dance. Everyone wants to fashionize up north, get rich in a New York minute and come home big and broad. But maybe they never come home at all, except in a coffin for the dead house man. And that ends the chapter, is it chapter four three chapter three and that's part part three i think and it's called endgame and as you can see um Laurie guns is doing a brilliant job so far again of making me depressed <laughs> all right so <laughs> so we're gonna be reading kingston farewell next um but for now, I'm going to end, go attend to the chicken, and try to upload this. Thanks for bearing with me. I'll put some of the podcast software, background music on this. I think I've given up on that podcast device I bought off Amazon. I know I bought it cheap, so it should, I should expect cheap um, performance. <laughs> but come on, man. Maybe it need a condenser or something to get rid of that staticky, staticky. So my apologies again for all that staticky in the first part of this. I'm trying. I, 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 it, it felt good sitting down around a, a desk and having the microphone in your face and pressing buttons. But not for me right now. And I do not think buying a more expensive one without knowing what I need to do. Oops, what am I doing here? Um, is gonna fix it. I'll probably just have more expensive problems there, so I'm not gonna do that. I'll just keep doing this until, and the one or two person listening, you know, you love torture. Look in the mirror and say, I love torture. <laughs> anyway, gonna wrap this up. Probably go shovel again. Jamaica, why we have a history. And I know every country has its history, every town, every city of its history. I was just listening yesterday or reading yesterday, not reading, sorry, watching on YouTube about um, Okinawa in the island of Okinawa in Japan. 
and that they were actually ruled by the United States after the World War until 1970-something. Then they gave back the, the island to the Japanese government as a present. <clears throat> it was given back, it looked like, by Nixon, because in the photo I saw Nixon in some of my other research. So I assume it was Nixon who gave them back the island. <clears throat> Funny enough, these people started in my research because these people from Okinawa are known to live the longest. They have the most centenarians, they call them. I think centenarians, centenarians, people who live for over 100 years in Okinawa, Japan. And I was trying to see what was that um, event or what is there about Okinawa, this Okinawa, that would contribute somehow to these long life folks. And that's how I started realizing that that information about it being owned or controlled by the United States after World War II until the 70s. It wasn't returned. The Battle of Okinawa, usually I remember hearing that, so it's not a term that's foreign to me. I think it was one of the big push by the Allies into Japan during World War II. Um, but I'm going, I'm, it has, it has, it has, it has, it has, I don't want to say ignite, but it has, it has, there is a, geez, a curiosity that has been awoken about that. But that's for another time, probably next year, if God's willing lies spare. Um, or maybe earlier, as I dig into Okinawa. But right now, Jamaican history has been lost. This is just recent history. <clears throat> we have a longer history. It would have been great to find out some of our history from even before Mr. Columbus um, lost his way and ran aground on our shores. <laughs> um, but we, we, we will know. And our history is mixed because talking about Okinawa, there's another place that I was seeing that has <clears throat> piqued my interest, piqued my interest. And it's a place called Nam Namibia in Africa, right beside South Africa and the south, southeast, southwest coast of Africa, right by the southern tip where South Africa is, but going to the east. And Namibia have a, a desert, a strip of land that, 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 is, that stretches <clears throat> from one end of that country to the next. That is called, I think it's called the, 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 the Namibia, the Namibia, the desert of Namib and Namibi desert, Namibi desert, something like that. <clears throat> and the geography of that desert, because of the warm here that blows across that desert and intermingles with the colder here that comes off the ocean, it's always very foggy. And it apparently is a very dangerous spot for, 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 for mariners, for anyone who is on the water. And there's a lot of shipwrecks there because what they can't navigate with all that fog. So over years, throughout every day, every era, there is ships that were that have run aground. And when the when the ships run aground, in, you would say, okay, they run aground on land, so they can survive. No, then they are they they are they are the survivors of the shipwreck tend to die in the desert. So it was very interesting to see that demographics, that kind of thing. And I said, wait, probably God's willing, 
I take a trip down, rent a vehicle and drive through that Namibia, Namib, that Namibia, Namibia, Namibia desert, a desert of Namibia. It would be interesting. They said like 2% or 5%, but a very low percent of the roads in Namibia <coughs> is actually asphalted. Most of it is um, gravel. And, um, you know, it was interesting though. I'm, 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 my interest is peak. So there, there's those places. Imagine the stories that somebody can tell you about these places. Interestingly, they're saying that Namibia, they have found, they have, they have never taken a, a, a drop of oil from Namibia. But just recently, just prior to COVID, or is it prior to COVID or since COVID, they have found deposits of oil that indicate that they may have more oil there than probably anywhere they have ever found. And so conveniently or whatever, it's maybe a propaganda, I don't know, that they are saying that, you know, now that Russia and Ukraine is at war, and in an attempt to show Russia that they have other or alternative source um, supply for the oil, um, the big companies are planning to go in and drill for oil in Namibia. That rarely ever spells benefit for the locals. So it will be an interesting, that's a story developing right now that someone will read about someday because usually that means um, destabilizing economies so that your people can be put in power and the destabilization tends to be through manipulations and through arming gangs and arming your people to do your bidding. You know, so here we go, Namibia. All right, so Jamaica. What is what Jamaica? Um, you know, you have to question yourself, what was Jamaica's value position for the bigger guys, United States, Russia, those places? Clearly, it's close proximity to the United States and, 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 and the, the flirting with Cuba and Castro would put Jamaica in the crosshairs, you know. Um, the U.S. would not be in a position and, and, and normally and, and ideally you can say should not be in the position to or accept a position where they would have two communist countries in the backyard. Um, whereas one Spanish-speaking and one English-speaking, game over. They, they couldn't have that, so it's understandable. They say when elephant fights, the grass get trampled, and the elephants, being the U.S. and the communist countries of USSR and back in the day, and um, China, you know, you know, we are the grass. Funny enough, China has, is the, 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 the fight, may, the Cold War may have subsided, but you have to give it to the China, to the Chinese, or to China. You have to give the props to them because they, they haven't stopped fighting. China is buying up and owning the Caribbean, literally. They own the docks, they, own, they control the docks, they control most of the logistics hub. Um, and that's another story. <clears throat> but it's interesting to see how China is leveraging their power in that way and has not stopped the fight that is ever, that, that, that what's the term? That eternal fight, I guess, a perpetual fight. 
And again, you know, here we go. The fight from the 70s, from the 60s, um, 70s, 80s. 90s was my coming of age, I think. The 90s would be probably my coming of age, probably the 80s. Late 80s, mid to late 80s would be my coming of age. Um, but 90s, I don't remember the 90s being more than a disorganized drug, foreign drug money fueled, fractitious kind of wars. If, if that makes sense. Because we had our done. I think he's dead now. I think they said he, they killed him. Like, he had killed a policeman's son and like on the anniversary. I don't know if it's the first, second or third anniversary of that man being, that young man being killed. The Dan was killed. So the word is that the, the Dan's, the man's father set that one up while he was coming from Elsha. That Dan and I had our own, our own, interactions. I remember one night when they had stolen the batteries from my father's truck too regularly and I was getting frustrated as a young man because I wanted to. The name of the guy I was trying to remember just came to mind you know, because he was the guy that they told me that I had stolen the battery but they waited until after he had died to tell me because they said they didn't want to tell me and you know whatever happened maybe I would have accosted him and you know that would be a good thing. What's the name of the guy? The name is on the tip of my tongue. His sister's name was Charmaine. And I remember when they had killed my best friend, Roger, Charmaine was the one wailing in the streets and said, Informer for dead, informer tell police. Because the police came in this, the community and they, they shot Roger, kill him. They claimed they were cleaning up the gang. And they claimed that Roger was wanted for shooting a guy and killing a young man who was playing dominoes over the other scheme. We were one phase and they were another phase. And um, so they claimed. And I saw, I'd seen Roger one morning, you know, it's funny. Roger, boy, Roger, Texas. We call him Roger, Texas. And Roger's parents had migrated to the States. So Roger started in the gang thing. We had a gang we called Art Stepper Crew. And then the gang became the DC crew, the Washington DC crew. They took this house over, called it the White House, painted it white, and they had murals of each person that had died. Someone would draw a mural or a picture of them on the wall. Ah, boy. But my mind is scattered now. Again, Laurie Guns, you have successfully depressed me even more but you know it's the knowledge you're putting you're stitching things together it's weird i read this book before now but i it's like i'm reading it for the first time i don't remember one thing i don't remember a word that's coming after i don't remember a sentence i don't remember any of the stories until i read it but i think i read it years ago maybe while i was working at the titles office downtown kingston but it's interesting. All right, so I'm getting there. I'm halfway there. I'm going to try and power through. All right? Halfway is usually halfway. So as we go, again, you know, just, 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 just understand yourself. Understand the people who love you. It's not about you. 
You see, the minute you talk about you and start worrying about you, you start to hurt others. Frankly, it's about loving, caring for, and being a servant to the ones you love. And just love the people around you. Be forgiving in your heart. Um, be accommodating. Understand that people, when they say certain things to you, they don't always say it with a negative. It might sound negative, but the intent might not be negative. Don't let the, 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 the pride and the, the, the bolstering that come in our DNA um, be a part of or uh, be prominent in the hallway, deport yourself. We have a history of fighters. And this book kind of illustrates a lot of these younger fight, these fighters from a, from a not, so, not, so, not so long ago time. Uh, we are related, we all try striving. It's not a good look, it's not a good life, but interestingly, they have become iconized and they have become um, legends in their own rights, right? Bob Marley himself sing about them. Bob Marley himself, who is a legend to this day, decades after his passing, is, um, was, took his inspiration from these, these men um, and these people. And it's funny, yeah, well, as I said, these men, you ask yourself, where are the women in this? You know, uh, where are our women? Where are our women? Because our women have become more prominent of late, you know, more than before. And our mothers, our sisters, we are out there doing this foolishness. Are we caring for our mothers and our sisters, our daughters? You know, as men, we need to not get caught up in the effort and care for these humans who are here for us. So, you know, it is interesting as the only woman that was mentioned in this book, actually, aside from Laurie Guns, who is writing it, the only woman that was mentioned in terms of moving a Negro was that lady that they said lowered the men up to that hotel and, and the man got massacred. To show the power of women, eh? Um, I guarantee you so a man couldn't lure some girls to hang out with them to know some bad girls, some gangsters, some leaders that way. No way. They're on them own. But alright, this is a very long reflection. I gotta I look like the chicken is being rapid tired right now, so I'm gonna go do what I need to do and season it up proper and get it cooking. Alright, so one love. Stay blessed. God bless.